Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, that you've brought us to this point again in one more study. Father, we know that uh, you don't count it as 66 books and you certainly don't reward us for how much we achieve in our study, Father. That's not the that's not the point. But can you blame us, Father, for for taking a moment to to be reflective on what we've accomplished in, in giving ourselves to this study and what you've accomplished, more importantly, in our hearts? And uh, Father, can you blame us for taking a moment to, to celebrate and to uh, consider that so many others don't take this opportunity? And, and so we do feel uh, blessed for having done it. And as we come to a close, Father, there's still more to know. There's still more lessons even beyond what will be taught tonight. There's a, there's a living word in front of us. So every time we come to it, we know it'll have something new, something important. Because, Father, you've made it to have that impact on our life. So as we finish it tonight, Father, and I do my best to present what you've given me and to communicate it accurately, Father, I know that all who listen will, will rest on the knowledge that you give them through the Spirit and not on what I give them by my power. And they'll do that, Father, continually even after tonight. And I thank you for that. So that we would glorify you and not me and that you would have the, the, the proper title of Father and Teacher and Leader and that no man would compete with those titles. And we ask, Lord, once more... Teach us by your spirit, convict us, and guide us into all righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this point in the study, chapter 12, Nehemiah has been living and working in Jerusalem for 12 years. This is 12 years of time now have passed since he came into the city. He's returned Israel to a place of obedience, to a people of spiritual strength. The wall has been rebuilt, the city is occupied, the temple is operating, and the people are working and living in submission to God's law under the covenant. And it's a time they haven't known since really Joshua and their original arrival into the land. It's a high point. In less than 400 years, the Messiah is going to be sent to Israel, which is just enough time between now and then for this reborn nation to strengthen and to be ready for that moment, to spread out, to repopulate the land, though they remain under the authority of Gentile oppressors sent to them by God because of what he said to Daniel. Nevertheless, Israel will be in its land, under the law, with a temple ready to receive the Messiah. So as we conclude the text of Nehemiah tonight, what we'll find in the last two chapters are an accounting of the authority of the priestly line in Israel, that is a validation that those who serve were those who should serve, and that's important because for future generations of Israel, they need to know that the line of priests that serve them do extend from Aaron and are presiding with the authority to do so. That's arguably why the priesthood is the most important within Israel. They're the only ones who can do this service. And so they must be accountable back genealogically to where they began. Remember Ezra stopped during his journey as he came down with exiles in the beginning of Ezra's book as he began to move. Remember he stopped at a point early in his journey because he noted that he didn't have enough priests in his gang of exiles. And so he stopped while they were still in Persia and he went out into some of the towns and recruited more Jews from the priestly tribe to join the exiles who were traveling back down to Jerusalem. He did that because these are the irreplaceable Jews. These are the ones who are irreplaceable as a group of individuals within the people of Israel. Without Levites, you can't conduct temple services. And remember, the purpose in them returning was to establish a house of worship to start the temple again in worship. So without the priest, you couldn't do that. So the Lord ensured that the exiles that returned included enough priests, not only Levites, but others who had temple service duties. And 
Among them was the reigning high priest of Israel. So the reigning high priest returned as well. Now in chapter 12, we're going to get the accounting of those men. So once again, we will have a list of names in chapter 12. Well, you haven't read it yet. Don't say yay till I've read it. This list can be compared to First Chronicles, which also lists the generations that went into captivity. And if you did that cross-referencing, and we won't bother tonight, but if you do the cross-referencing in First Chronicles, then you'll see that the high priest of Israel that is reflected in this list is the legitimate successor to the high priest who went away into captivity as Israel was taken by Nebuchadnezzar. So that means they maintained that office even in captivity. So let's read chapter 12, verse 1 through 26. And then after that, we get into some more narrative again. Verse 1. Now, these are the priests and the Levites who came out with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel and Jeshua and Sariah and Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shachaniah, Rahum, Meramoth, Ido, Jenathoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joirib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilakiah, and Jediah. These were the heads of the priests and their kinsmen in the days of Jeshua. The Levites were Jeshua, Binui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, Mataniah, who was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, he and his brothers. Also, Bak, Bukaiah, and Unai, their brothers, stood opposite them in their service divisions. Yeshua became the father of Joachim, and Joachim became the father of Elishib, and Elishib became the father of Joiada, and Joiada became the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan became the father of Jadua. Now, in the days of Joachim, the priests, the heads of fathers' households were Sariah, Mariah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshalam, of Amariah, Jehohanan, of Malukai, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, of Merioth, Helkiah, uh, Helkai, of Edo, Zechariah, of Ginathon, Mashalam, of Abijah, Zishri, Mainayamin, of Moadiah, Pilkai, Bilgah, Shamua, of Shamaiah, Johanathan, of Jairib, Mataniah, of Jediah, Uzai, of Salai, Kalai, of Amak, Eber, of Helkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nathanel. As for the Levites, the heads of fathers' households were registered in the days of Eliashib, Joida, Johanan, Jadua. So were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. The sons of Levi, the heads of fathers' households, were registered in the book of the Chronicles up to the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. The heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Yeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers opposite them, to praise and give thanks, as prescribed by David, the man of God, division corresponding to division. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshalam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers, keeping watch at the storehouses of the gates. These served in the days of Joachim, the son of Yeshua, the son of Josedek, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. All right, so why did we have this list? Well, let's just review it quickly. First, verses 1 through 7, those list 22 leaders among the priests who returned with the exiles under Zerubbabel in 537 B.C. And then in verses 8 and 9, after them, you have priests who have special duties, singing songs of thanksgiving particularly. Those names will match the ones that Ezra provides in chapter 2. 
And then the high priests are listed in verses 10 through 11. You have five successive generations of high priests are listed there. They trace all the way back to the high priest that left with Israel into captivity. The genealogies of these men are being provided because it was important to validate, as I said, the legitimacy of the priests who served in the temple. This is an effective record to do that. The genealogical records of Israel were protected throughout their history with tremendous care, uh, unlike any other nation that's ever existed. And the records were housed in the temple in Jerusalem once the temple was there. And then they were updated every time a son was born and registered at the temple. Israel's emphasis on genealogies was instituted as a consequence of God's covenants with them. The nation of Israel inherited promises of God by birthright. Just as the U.S. assigned citizenship to those who would be born inside our borders, well, in Israel, you extended honor to those who were born into the family of Israel. So keeping accurate genealogies was critical if you were to know who to acknowledge as Israel and who to reject as not being Israel. You had to have some documental proof to make the distinction. But all of that is a man-made process, understood. But that fastidiousness is also something God was working through in the nation to ensure that they could accurately identify the Messiah when he came along in the form of Christ from Nazareth. Because Jesus could say he fit all of the genealogical requirements given by the prophets concerning who the Messiah would be, from which tribe and which father, born in which city, and so on. It could be easily verified that Jesus fit all of those requirements, and many others, of course. From his genealogy, we know that Jesus was not born into the priestly tribe of Aaron, or Levi, not the one that was established under the law of Moses. He was rather from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings. But scripture says he is, nevertheless, our high priest. And Hebrews is the book that explains to us how it can be that Jesus can be our priest, though he does not descend from Aaron. And the answer is because he comes under a different order of priesthood, not the one that was established in law, but one that predates the law itself. The writer says this clearly in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. The writer says the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by their death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he was able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son, made perfect forever. This is a conversation in the book of Hebrews that follows an earlier one on a man called Melchizedek, and we don't have time to go into all the details on him. But Jesus belongs to an eternal priesthood named after that man in the book of Genesis, the Melchizedek priesthood, a priesthood that has never had a beginning or an end. It wasn't established by law. It doesn't trace itself to the Aaronic priesthood. It predates Aaron. So, unlike the Aaronic priesthood that begins with the law and ends with the end of the law in Christ, Jesus belongs to a priesthood that was never created and will never end. In A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, just as Jesus said would happen. The destruction of what was the greatest structure of its day also resulted in the Jews losing all of their genealogical records, for they were stored in the temple and they were burned when the temple was burned. 
Today, Jews have no potential to trace their ancestry. They can't go past AD 70 to find out their identity beyond that. And more importantly, you cannot identify who should or shouldn't be a priest today under the Aaronic priesthood. Priestly surnames can sometimes be used to identify, but even then that's not a perfect measure because you can change your name. So the question remains, who is a priest today and who isn't? Why did the Lord make this come about? He did this to ensure that the Jewish people would lose their ability to follow the law once Messiah had come and put an end to the law. They've lost their ability to sacrifice in the temple. They've lost their priesthood. They've lost their ability to trace their lineage back to Jacob. That is why Paul says the law held Israel under custodianship until the coming of the seed promise, that is Christ. Once the Messiah came, the nation lost their custodian. They lost their law in the sense that they lost the ability to fulfill it in any hope, with any hope. Without a temple and a priesthood, most of it cannot be executed whatsoever. Still, that covenant has not been done away with. The law has, but not the covenant. Those are separate institutions. The law was given through a covenant, but the covenant itself, the old covenant, is still in effect over the nation of Israel who does not believe in Christ. They are still held to its terms, and those terms say that they will be under judgment until such time as the entire nation repents of their sins under the covenant and receives Christ, which we know comes on the very last day of tribulation, resulting in his second coming. So until that moment, Israel will continue to feel the curses of the old covenant, which is why they are today under the circumstances they are as a nation. But God will bring it to their glory one day. Finally, Christians also have a genealogy to be concerned with. But ours is very simple, according to Scripture. We all trace our genealogy one step back from where we are now, to Christ. We were all born again by faith, and we've become adopted sons and daughters into the family of God. And so we all trace our genealogy from where you are to Christ. Our genealogy is one line with two dots. You on the bottom, Christ on the top. So genealogies no longer matter. For we've been born again into a new family, grafted in as Gentiles. So back to the text, Nehemiah 12. Now that we've dealt with the genealogies and such of priests, now we get back to the narrative, verses 27 all the way through the end of the chapter, 27 to 43. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophethites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hoshaiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets. And Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, and the son of Shemaiah, and the son of Mattaniah, and the son of Mechaiah, the son of Zakur, and son of Asaph, and his kinsmen, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milaliah, Gilaliah, Mai. Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairwell of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left, while I followed them 
with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God, so did I and half the officials with me, and the priests, Elikim, Maasiah, Miniamin, Mechaiah, Eliohaniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah. Any more ayahs, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be crying. <laughs> with the trumpets. And Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Johanan, Malachijah, Elam, and Izer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah, their leader. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. All right, finally, the time has come to dedicate the wall. The events described here probably occur soon after the renewal of the covenant, which we witnessed a few chapters back. The word dedication is simple. It just means an event to celebrate an accomplishment, to declare that it's formally been accomplished, formally been completed. And so in this dedication, the people are going to use two choirs, we're told, who will stand on the wall and they're going to sing praises to the Lord from that position. And the people that go up on the wall are largely the priests, you notice, the priests who then will be accompanied by others as well. They're going to stand along the entire length of the wall as if they were a part of the wall. In fact, basically, if you look at the geography, they go up at the same point. One goes left, one goes right, and they ring the circle of the city on top of the wall. And they'll sing in unison. In fact, it seems as though as this entire procession moves, they're singing as they move. It's going to be big. It's going to be grand. It's bound to catch the attention of the surrounding peoples who may be working nearby or, or passing through or, or merchants in the area. The entire assembly is designed to catch attention. They begin at the temple, we're told. They meet there for a period of ritual cleansing under the law. And that is to ensure that all the priests and all the people are eligible to serve God. Then they separate into two choirs. Then they climb to the top at the valley gate. Then they walk around one clockwise, one counterclockwise. This is the same wall, by the way, that Israel's enemies said wouldn't be strong enough to hold a fox. And the whole city is going to stand on it, pretty much. If you can imagine what that site must have been like. That's a pretty remarkable thing. I wonder how long they sang during that day. So I wonder how many eyes were tearing up in the moment. As they looked around, they heard their own voices, they saw this site. A thousand voices all singing to God at the same time. I wonder what that sounded like. Besides being a remarkable scene, this moment is a beautiful picture of the fruit of God's restoration, which has been our theme from the beginning of this study. God taking rebellion, breaking it, bringing it back to himself, but doing it to produce fruit. And the fruit he expects is of a particular kind. He expects us to become instruments of praise for the sake of his name before the nations of the world. First, I want you to consider the setting of this place for a moment, this setting for the moment of praise. You have priests declaring the faithfulness of the Lord to have built this wall of stones. They declare this while they themselves are surrounding the temple of God, the home of the glory of Israel. They declare it in every direction, north, south, east and west. You see a picture forming here, one that's fulfilled in us or any who would be restored by the Lord's kindness. Let's start first with the words of First Peter 2, 5. He says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
The believer is called to be living stones, just like those singers who stood atop the wall and became living stones, as it were, a part of the wall for a moment. And they stood at that wall to be living evidence of the restorative work of God in their life. Nehemiah didn't come to build a wall. We've said that many times. He came to rebuild a people. And as the project comes to a close, it's the people who become instruments of praise to God for that work. In the same way, he has a work to do in all of us by faith. And as a result of that work, we're called to be instruments of praise to the Lord in how we live and in how we echo his work through our words. Peter goes one step further a few verses later in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You notice also Peter calls us priests. So we are called priests in Scripture, and it draws an even stronger parallel to this moment. Think what a priest does in general. A priest is there to represent men before God and to intercede before God for the sake of those they serve. We have a similar role. We are set apart by faith and the indwelling of the Spirit to serve the Lord by interceding on behalf of the world. We are the people of God. We have been called out of darkness, Paul says. Now we are the ones who go out and call others out of that same darkness. That's the priestly intercessionary role we play on earth. Finally, we gain our audience by standing up, by being willing to stand out, by making the most of that opportunity to praise God, to be noticeable, not to hide. Some of us may turn to the left, others of us may turn to the right to abuse the analogy, but no matter where we go, the Spirit of God will live in our midst He lives in our very bodies. So as we stand up in the world, we essentially are that temple that temples in the midst of us in the sense that our body is the temple of the Lord. So the plan of what he does here in a very dramatic way is playing out every day in our own life. We just don't see it necessarily in the same way. You see, God's plan of restoration was never about Israel. It was always about declaring the Lord's greatness before the nations of the world. Israel was to be a city on the hill. That's literally out of Scripture. That's not a political statement. Israel is to be a city on a hill declaring the wonders of God's work. They were to be the light in darkness. That was their call. And to varying degrees, they lived up to it, usually less than where they should. We are the ones to do that for a time. The church now takes that role for a time. But again, with the same call. Now, in the case of Israel, the people were too distracted by their own sin to truly fulfill that purpose historically, except perhaps in this one moment and maybe in a few others. In fact, there is no better moment in all Israel's history than this one. This moment of singing on the wall has to be a high point in the nation of Israel's story. I don't think it's any coincidence that this moment comes chronologically at the end of the Old Testament. This is this is the last scene of the Old Testament chronologically. Every other book that's written is talking about things earlier than this moment. So this is where Israel's left on the scene of the Old Testament chronology before 400 years passes and Messiah shows up. Notice how it ends, verse 43. The joy of Israel is heard from afar. The next time something like this happens in Israel won't happen again until the Lord is living and reigning on the earth in the kingdom. Once again, the people of Israel will serve as a beacon on earth celebrating the Lord's goodness. But until then, Israel is on the sidelines. Zechariah describes that moment. Look how similar it sounds in some respects to what we just read. Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. 
All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from, and listen to some of these terms, from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. It's really exactly what you hear happening now. Only, of course, here you have the Lord living in his physical form in the midst of it, not simply the temple empty of the Lord's glory. That's what Israel has coming. Following the celebration, Nehemiah thought it was probably the right time to ensure that the people kept their responsibility to care for the priests as the law required. So at the end of this chapter, verses 44 through 47, he reminds them of what they must do. He says in verse 44, on that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God in the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. These are the temple services David appointed and instituted for the work of the priests. There was a change when they left the tabernacle and went into a temple, which brought the need for all these additional support people, all of those who had to serve to make sure that everything that happened in a big and busy place could happen in a regular way, much more difficult than when you just had a little tabernacle. And the taxes went up as well for the nation to pay for all of the things that the priests need, which proves that as government grows, so do taxes to support it. So these demands were in keeping with the law, though they were not necessarily all found in the law, but they were intended to keep the heart of what the law required. Why do we have this stuck on at the end of chapter 12? Seems a bit superfluous. I mean, it's still talking about priests, so there's certainly a theme of the, of the priesthood running throughout this chapter. Why is it stuck in here, though? It's stuck here because these represent the final duties that Nehemiah performs before he leaves to go back to King Artaxerxes. And it's important to see how they play out while he's gone. It's important for him to go back at this point because he's been away for the length of time he said he was going to be away, 12 years. If he stayed any longer then he would be considered a rebel to the king. The king would have reason to concern himself with why is this guy started to like being in charge of that city so much. It could indicate he's wanting to rebel and maybe be his own king. So he needs to go back, do his duty, and return. But when the cat's away, the mice, well, you know the rest. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, prior to this, Eliasha, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils and tithes of grain and wine and oil prescribed for the Levites the singers and the gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked for leave 
from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. All right, if you read this passage from verse 1 to verse 7, you'll be totally and thoroughly confused. If you read it backwards, it makes perfect sense. And you have to do that to understand this section because you'll notice there's points along the way where he says prior to this, but before this, he's really telling the story backwards. So to understand it, you have to read it backwards. And I don't mean literally read every word backwards. I mean, read the thoughts as they come in a reverse order. So let me do that for you. Nehemiah says he left the city after 12 years to return to King Artaxerxes. He originally arrived in 444 B.C. So 12 years later, he's leaving in 432 B.C. He's gone for about a year, and he returns to the city again in 431 B.C. While he's away, the people begin to slide back into disobedient behaviors, especially as it related to the corrupting of their leaders. And you see that here. First, Eliashib, the high priest, begins to show favor to one of his relatives in a way that violates David's instructions for the temple. The relative is a man we've heard of before, Tobiah. He's a Jewish Ammonite, which may sound contradictory, but what it means is he's a Jew who has married into an Ammonite family. And as a result, he became a ruler in that family, a ruler of Ammonites. He's living outside the city initially. Remember, he was one of the enemies of the people of Israel as they started the rebuilding. And with Sambalat, he was against Israel trying to rebuild the wall and was working against them to stop it. We've already seen him doing that. But now that the city has a wall and it's been rebuilt and it's an attractive place to live, now his, his attitude's changed. And he's tried to worm his way back into living in the city and used his family connections through the high priest to find a way to do it. And the high priest seems willing to allow it, perhaps to build a stronger alliance with the Ammonites, maybe just because he's a relative and he's not worth fighting over, who knows, a foreigner living among the Jews in Jerusalem would not have been well tolerated by the people. So maybe that's another reason he decides to hole him up in a tight, cramped room inside the temple. And that may also be because the city itself was tight. There wasn't a lot of extra room. So if Tobias says, find me a place in the city and the high priest wants to be complicit in this, he says, well, you know what? I can clear out one of these storerooms that we use to store all the stuff we give to the priests. All the stuff we collect from the people, the, the tithes, the, the grain they eat, all the stuff that's for them, we'll just clear it out of that space and you can put your apartment in there. And that would have meant that space for storage was reduced. So that stuff had to go somewhere, but maybe there wasn't anywhere for it. It would have reduced the food and necessities available to the priests, perhaps. At the very least, though, it's an improper use of the temple. Clearly not a good situation. So... Nehemiah returns to the city. He discovers Tobias living in the temple. Now, he's not going to be happy with this. That much is obvious. On that day, we're told, he commands a reading of the law concerning the prohibition against associating with Ammonites and Moabites. That's found in Deuteronomy 23, 23.3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet with you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. So the law recounts how on two different occasions, Ammonites and Moabites conspired against the Jews and did so while the Jews were wandering in the desert. 
In the first case, it was when the people of Israel wanted to pass through the land of Edom, but Edom refused, and they forced Israel into a long and dangerous journey around the Red Sea to avoid Edom. And then in the second case, King Balak, who's a Moab, he hires a prophet named Balaam to curse the people of Israel, but God turns everything Balaam says into a blessing, the donkey and, you know, the whole story. So despite those prohibitions against Ammonites and Moabites, we also know a woman named Ruth, who is a Moabitess, was brought into Israel and now is found in the line of the Messiah. She was barred by law from becoming part of Israel, but by her faith in Israel's God, Ruth was redeemed by Boaz when he married her. Her faith removed the curse of the law against her, and by her marriage to Boaz, she became a member of the nation. She became a Jewish member of the nation by, by marriage, in other words, and through her faith that was made possible. The prohibition of the law, by the way, uses masculine nouns when it describes Ammonites or Moabites. Woman, a woman could be allowed in if she accepted the God of Israel as her God and married a Jewish man. Then she basically was a proselyte into the nation of Israel at that point. Since we know Boaz is a picture of Christ and the book of Ruth teaches that the law could not achieve what grace could, then we see in their proof of how Gentiles who have no affinity or have no connection to God by the law, by the covenant, nevertheless find a way in by means other than law, by means of grace, which is what Ruth found her way. And she was redeemed by Boaz by grace. The Gentile church is redeemed by Christ through our faith, and we are made a bride, and that's how we're brought into the family of God, by that marriage to a, a redeemer, when we would never have otherwise had opportunity by law to have enjoyed any of the promises of God. Paul says that in Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel is equivalent to what was said about Moabites and Ammonites. They were prohibited from being a part of the assembly of Israel. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So by grace, through faith, we can be united in a way that law does not permit. The law did not permit Ammonites and Moabites to become part of the nation, but under certain circumstances, by grace, they could be redeemed and brought into Israel, grafted in, as it were. But in this moment, you don't see that kind of redemption going on. You don't see that kind of reconciliation. There's no faith here. You see an illegitimate attempt by an enemy of Israel to assemble inside the city for his own purposes, and he's doing it in conflict with law. So at the rereading of the law, Nehemiah brings the people's mind back to the requirements of God's word. And as a result, we're told they act in accordance with what they learn. They kick all the foreigners out in the city. And apparently Tobias wasn't the only foreigner in the city at the time. But they clean house. So in what you read, working backward, Nehemiah is telling the story of how when he showed up, he had to read this law, get the people's attention, get them to act properly. Why? Well, because all this bad stuff had been happening while I was gone. Verse 8. Now, Nehemiah personally takes care of the Tobias problem. Verse 8. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobias' household goods out of the room. 
Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Pedaiah, the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute it to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. So Nehemiah literally throws Tobias out and all his stuff with him. I would love to have seen that. Then all the proper material was returned to the storehouse. And once again, we see Nehemiah here as instrumental in gaining the people's obedience. Besides Tobias, Nehemiah also learns that the people have begun to retreat from their promises to support the priests. The priests serve the people by working in the temple and they're supposed to receive their support from the people that they serve. But in this case, people stop giving tithes. So if they want to eat... The Levites have to go somewhere else to figure out how to do that. So they return to their land. They have no choice but to go back, making a living for themselves and for their family because no one was going to support them. That is the inevitable result of God's people muzzling the spiritual ox, as Paul calls it. They are only going to hurt themselves in the long run by preventing their appointed ministers from devoting their time to that service. And so that's what happened in the house of God. Nehemiah issues a reprimand against the officials of Israel for their failure while he's been gone. The people are not reprimanded. The people are sheep. I mean, they need leaders to direct them into obedience. But Nehemiah is gone, and without good leaders, the obedience waned. And so Nehemiah comes back, changes out the leaders, finds many things are more trustworthy, reestablishes everything. But I want you to notice the people go back to tithing without nary a complaint. It's not as though the people rebelled against the idea of tithing. What lesson do you draw from this incident? Well, notice that the offense that they're making here is one of the things that the people said they would not do when they renewed their covenant back a couple of chapters ago. Remember, they made three promises of all the things in the law, the three things they sought to emphasize. We will never do these things again. They said that they would not forsake the priests and the temple service. They said they wouldn't abuse the Sabbath. And they said they wouldn't intermarry with Gentiles. Those were the three things that they stood up tall and said, we're not going to make these mistakes anymore. In this chapter, you're going to see them do all three. Is obedience in Israel a hopeless goal? Well, until faith comes in the heart, obedience to law is always a challenge and usually a failure. But the bigger lesson here is the need for God's leaders to keep God's word ever present before God's people if obedience is to stand a chance at all. Notice the people were not unwilling to obey the commandment. When they heard what the law said back in the first verses I read, what did they do? They immediately removed all the foreigners. No fight, no issue, no argument. And it seems that they fell into line to support the priests with their tithes as soon as that was reestablished by Nehemiah. It's not as if the people wearied of the requirements. It seems as though because the high priest had neglected to live according to the word and neglected to teach it and had begun to abuse it himself, the people just drifted away as well. That's going to happen any time leaders set the word of God aside. Men inevitably return to doing what is right in their own eyes. Inevitably, a key barometer of whether the word is sufficiently valued and understood among God's people is 
the degree of tolerance for assembling with the world. When you can feel comfortable about assembling with the world, then you've lost sight of God's call through his word to set yourself apart, to stand out. To be clear, the Bible doesn't command us to cease associating with the world. Paul makes clear that we are to associate, for that is why we are still here. He'd have to take us out of the world if we were to stop associating with the world. But associating and assembling are two different things altogether. We're not to assemble with the world. Scripture says that in the last days, the church would fall away from the word of God. And as a result of that falling away, the church would begin to assemble with the world. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 31, he presents another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. In this parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of God, which in Matthew's gospel is the church as we know it today, leading to the physical reality of the kingdom on earth one day. But as the kingdom of God grows over the centuries in the form of the church for now, Jesus says it grows big enough to be bigger than anything else, consuming throughout the world. And it is that way today. We see the church in all corners of the earth in one form or another. But at some point, it begins to attract birds resting in its branches. Birds are often used as pictures in Scripture of both believers and unbelievers in the sense that this tree is big enough to allow all types of birds to rest in its branches. It's evidence of the apostasy of the church of the last days, that the church will become big enough to welcome into itself those who are not of it, those who are not believers. So that physically, just practically speaking, we're talking about the church assembling with unbelievers and not knowing who's who. How can that be? Only when the word of God has become so diminished that it doesn't call us out for who we really are. It can leave enough wiggle room that we can all be who we want to be, believer or otherwise, and feel comfortable to some degree. That's a challenge of the last days. That apostasy, Paul says, comes right before the end in 1 Timothy 4.1. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. A few verses later in that same chapter of 1 Timothy 4, Paul says the solution to that is the same antidote that Nehemiah used here. He says in verse 6, In pointing out these things to you, brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Paul says, I'm pointing these things out to you so that you will be a good servant of Christ in paying attention to the word of God so that you will not become one of these people. Constant nourishment on the word of God and sound doctrine are essential. The scene here in Nehemiah also presents a picture of Christ, at least to a degree. If you consider Nehemiah as a picture of the Lord in some sense, for the sake of this moment anyway, then you might see a parallel between him and Christ's first and second coming. Just as Nehemiah's first coming was in secret and for the purpose of building a wall of living stones, as we said, then Nehemiah's departure gave opportunity for the leaders of God's people to wander away from the truth and the people drifted away with them. But then at his return, Nehemiah comes and sets all things straight. He throws out those who are not his people. He restores all things to its proper order and he is the exacting judge in his return. It could be a picture of sorts for Jesus' second coming back to his people. I want you to consider Jesus' own statements regarding that moment. He says in Matthew 24, 46, 
Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves, eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in a place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think they knew when Nehemiah was coming back? I'm sure they had no idea. Matthew 13:27, Jesus says, The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you might uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Then lastly, in Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. To summarize those parables, the Lord's return will be met, we're told, by leaders taking advantage of the people. Those people are going to be abused by their leaders in the church. The abuse is a failure to feed Christ's sheep. Remember, if you love him, Jesus said, you will feed my sheep. The opposite of love, then, would be to not feed Christ's sheep. But at Christ's return, the world is going to be separated in such a way that God will separate his people from those who are not his. And as you might expect, that's going to be an uncomfortable moment for those who are found to be not doing the right thing. We're talking here about believers and unbelievers mixing together and then being separated in this moment. But what you see in Nehemiah now is the effect of leaders who depart from the word, letting their people drift only to their own undoing at a time of accounting that comes for all of us. Having just forsaken that first promise, they've gone back on all three of them. Let's read 15 through 23. This is the second thing they violate, the Sabbath, and it's a relatively quick study. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah some who were trading wine press on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. And then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Well, this is pretty easy to see. People working on the Sabbath, despite saying they wouldn't. They were doing manual labor, conducting commerce, all things prohibited by the law. And then you have the merchants of the surrounding peoples being allowed to come and work within the city. That's not allowed. Sojourners, foreigners, you have to observe the Sabbath too. 
So once again, Nehemiah steps up, stops the abuse, rebukes the people, rebukes the merchants, shuts the doors, posts guards, tells the merchants who are hanging around on the outside, hoping that maybe they'll open the door anyway and let them sell a few things on the Sabbath. He says, get out of here. I'm going to use force against you. In the earlier example, Nehemiah was intent on restoring the people's respect for the holy place that God had established, how they treated the temple and the servants and all the rest. Here, he's intent on restoring the holy time, that is the Sabbath day within the week. The people were allowing worldliness to erode their commitment to the Lord in both of these matters. And once again, you can blame the leaders who allowed them to drift away in this way. There's a theme in both cases, though. Money, greed. What they wanted was things of this world rather than the things of the next. And then lastly, the people disobeyed their third promise against intermarriage. This will finish our study, verses 23 through 31. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Some of the Jews were told began to marry the Gentiles. And as they married these Gentiles, then they began to speak the language. The kids grew up learning the language of the Gentiles and they forsook speaking even Hebrew. That behavior, were it allowed to continue, would be the beginning of the end for Israel. So Nehemiah takes his strongest stand yet. He even physically attacks those, in this case, who violated the law. Curses, strikes, pulls their hair. That's a painful thing to do to someone, but it's no lasting damage. It's relatively harmless. The point is to make them understand the seriousness of what they've done. And then he says, I want you to swear by God you're not going to keep doing this. That's important because that kind of a promise comes with a punishable by death consequence if they should break their promise. Nehemiah uses the example of King Solomon to end the chapter and the book to remind them that greater men than they have come along and made the same mistake and paid dearly for it. How are they going to stand in the face of the same kind of error? If, if Solomon couldn't prevent the harm that came on him from making these kinds of mistakes, him with his wives, how could they expect to do so? If prior generations were sent out of the land into Babylon for failure to keep the land Sabbath and you're profaning the Sabbath now, having been restored to the land, how far can you test God? And if he's pushed you out once, will he bring you back again? Are you sure? In fact, you see one of the high priests here had allowed his own son to marry the daughter of Sambalit, who was their chief adversary when they were building the wall. I can assume Sambalit had arranged the marriage to either corrupt the people or just to absorb them into his own culture because the enemy never gives up. The enemy never stops. He'll try force and guile and intimidation, but if all of that fails, then he'll tempt us to walk away from obedience to God's word so that we become weak and eventually we look just like a tear. It takes leaders to remind us of the word of God 
and to enforce its provisions if we're going to be saved from that outcome. As you reflect on this story, having gone through it all now and finished it, and reflect on its place in the history of the canon coming at the very end of the Old Testament, notice one last pattern. God often moves at times in history to accomplish a good purpose by bringing a leader, a new word, and in some cases beginning a new dispensation through that person. You can think of Noah, Moses, David, and here Nehemiah. But he also wants to make clear when he does these things that these men are not the solution. These men are not the Messiah. They point to him in various ways, but they are not the fulfillment of all things. That point is made in each case by showing how the people or even the individuals themselves will fail to live an upright life in all respects. How sin will creep back in to illustrate that we haven't yet solved the real problem. You have Noah's son sinning after the flood. You have Moses sinning in the desert. You have Israel sinning after Moses' leadership. You have the people of Israel sinning under David and Solomon. And now they do so again here under Nehemiah. And it's no coincidence that the three sins Nehemiah finds are the very three things they promised they would not do. Flesh is weak. Law does not create righteousness. There is no solution for sin apart from Christ himself. And yet the Lord is good to send us men like Nehemiah who can call us to live in pleasing ways, so that we receive the blessing of restoration and reward as well. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for restoration. Each of us, Father, were once disobedient, enemies, foreigners, strangers to the promises, but you brought us in by the faith that you gave us through Christ. And now, Father, we have been restored and adopted into a family that will never leave us. And yet there is still a world who needs that same restoration, Father. And believers who have walked away in disobedience, failing to live pleasing lives, Father, and we ask that they would be restored as well. We may be instruments to help them. That one way or another, your grace would abound more than their sin. And we ask, Lord, that with we, when we do get restored, when we have those moments of failure and you're good to bring us back, that you'd help us, Father, stay in the Word and under the, the guidance of good leaders so that we wouldn't fail a second time. For we know you don't have limitless patience, though you have far more than we would. You are long-suffering in the face of what we do, and your grace abounds all the more. We praise you for that, and thank you, Lord, for this study. Bring us back for the next one in due time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.